We're in Revelation chapter 8 tonight. Of course, you know, I, I say we'll be here, and that is, of course, unless we get raptured. And <laughs> I'm saying all that, and I'm like, hey, if the Lord wills, right? You got you to gotta put that in there, too, uh, because he is ready to come back for his people, and I'm ready to be taken home. We're Revelation chapter 8 tonight. Let's uh, go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into this amazing chapter. And Father, we do, with anticipation, look forward to the coming of your Son for us, where we will meet him in the air and be with him for all of eternity. That is the desire of our hearts. And and yet, God, uh, just absolutely according to your will and according to your perfect timing, and I pray in these last days that you would really equip us God, we, your people, that we would be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, that we would recognize the value of every minute that you grant as an opportunity for your grace to touch a heart, just as your grace has touched our heart. Father, help us to not be solely satisfied with with having our eternal destiny settled. God, help us to be burdened for the lost. Help us, God, to to be uh, in a state of unease as we have so many people around us who don't know you. I pray it would be impossible, God, for us to live without that burden for the lost. And I pray, God, that this week in particular as you divinely place people within our lives that there would be a boldness, God, a baptism of your Holy Spirit upon each of us. God, that we would not be asleep in the amazing final moments that you've granted us to live in with respect to history, but God, you would use us for your divine purposes and Give us a hungering and a thirsting for that. Thank you for your word tonight, God. We know that your word is always blessed. It is the living word of God, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray tonight that the soil of our hearts would be prepared to receive it, that it might bring forth an abundance of fruit for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's there's a great tendency in the study of the book of Revelation particularly when we're talking about the judgments. There's a great tendency to try to take the judgments and, you know, figure out just what exactly in our current context could those judgments be. And, you know, it's not necessarily a bad exercise. You know, tonight we're going to talk about a a couple of um, different trumpet judgments. And there are, you know, various technologies that are available to us today that, that may, you know, fit the picture here uh, and it, it may be, like, I, I'm going to speculate a little, a little bit tonight just about um, some of these judgments and what, in fact, they might be. Uh, but, you know, really, it is impossible to say with any level of certainty what these judgments are. And while it's not necessarily um, a wrong exercise to figure out what current technologies these judgments may represent, we also have to be really satisfied with the fact that these are supernatural judgments, And there may be no earthly explanation for them. Do you understand what I'm saying tonight? Sometimes I think there's a danger because we can sensationalize the book of Revelation. 
And we can put ourselves in a place where we're so determined to figure out just exactly how these things would happen that we begin to make connections to things in our, you know, current era that aren't necessarily absolute connections. And this happened a lot in the 70s, you know, with the advancement of certain technologies and uh, you, there, there were particular people, you know, writing books that were talking about how these locusts that had stings in their tails were actually black helicopters, and I'll get into that a little bit more when we, you know, get a f- further down a little bit in the book of Revelation. Um, but I'm just saying to you tonight, you know, there's a balance in all of this, right? We for sure want to figure out how these things might fit in our current context, and yet at the same time, we need to be settled with the reality that these are supernatural occurrences, and we don't necessarily need an earthly explanation for them. And, you know, there's got to be peace in that for us. I think sometimes we're pressured by the world, or at least we have a sense that we're pressured by the world to give a, a rational explanation for the events that are happening in the book of Revelation, but they are so supernatural Right? They, this is a level of tribulation and di- difficulty that the world has never seen before or experienced before. And so I think it's very appropriate for us to be able to say, hey, listen, you know, it's a, I, don't, I don't totally know how this is going to come to pass. I don't know exactly what this is, but I know that uh, it's in the Word of God, so it is absolutely going to happen. Tonight what we're going to do is we're going to see the opening of the seventh seal. Just want to remind you, in case you haven't been with us, that uh, we are in the process of following Jesus in opening the scroll. Remember, on the scroll, there were seven seals. And I explained to you, you know, the ancient use of scrolls and how oftentimes these particular scrolls were sealed up. So either they were protected in the sense of they would get to the individual that they were intended uh, to to uh, the person who was supposed to receive it, you know, it was, they were sealed so that there was authority established and that the seals were not opened uh, until they got to the individual who was supposed to be reading the scroll. In addition to that, oftentimes these scrolls were sealed in such a way where they would open in particular portions or in sections. And so the seal wasn't necessarily across, like if you roll up a scroll, you know, you've got that that, that edge that's disconnected from the rest of the scroll. It's not only as if there were seven, seven seals across that edge. It could, could have been that these seals were also on the furthest edge so that you would unroll a, a particular portion and you would get to another seal that was on the edge. And then you would break that seal and it would unroll to the next section and so on and so forth. And really, that is how these seal judgments are presented and that, that it, it for sure appears that this is how these judgments roll out. There's seal judgments, there's trumpet judgments, there's bowl judgments. Six seals have been uh, released in a sense. We've gotten to the seventh seal. Now the loosing of the seventh seal opens up seven more judgments, seven trumpet judgments. So this is kind of where I come to the conclusion personally that it does seem that these judgments are chronological, not necessarily simultaneous. But remember, we're talking about Jesus, who is the Lamb. He is the one who has the authority. He's the only one who has the authority. He's the only one who has the power. He's the only one who has the right to take the scroll from the right hand of the Father and to begin to loose these particular seals. So the Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 8, 
When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So, of course, when John says he, he's talking about Jesus, and you know, like you don't have, even have to read any further than verse 1 to know that what is coming is really serious, right? There is a somber silence that is going to be happening in heaven, and that's in great contrast to all of the worship that we've seen. You know, I've said to you just a number of times how loud heaven is going to be, and it's going to be a, a, pray, a, a place of exuberant praise and worship. And yet what's coming from the sense of the judgments being poured out is, is going to be so serious that John describes heaven as absolutely silent, like you could just completely hear a pin drop. And I think that that is just a, a portent of the difficult troubles that are going to come. Some people say this is, uh, you know, the, the division of the tribulation period now that is leading into Jacob's trouble. So the severity of these judgments is on an increasing level. Um, it is interesting, I think, as you, th you consider the contrast, right? We've gone from very loud to absolute silence. Um, anytime the wrath of God is being poured out, you know it's, it's, a, it's a sobering thing. Anytime there's an expression of the justice of God, it, it is a sobering thing. When you see God chastening a brother or a sister in the church, you know it's a sobering thing. You stop, you pause, you consider deeply, and uh, you ask the Spirit of God to search your heart because you don't want to be in the, in the same spot, right? Are you with me tonight? You know what that's like? And I think, you know, growing up it was like this. When my dad wasn't happy, when the justice of dad was about to be expressed, everybody got silent. I, re I remember in particular one uh, situation I was in, and I've shared the story a number of times. I do have a sweet tooth. Like I've got sweet teeth. I've got a serious sweet issue. I love sugar. And um, my sister, when she was in high school, she was a cheerleader and she had this fundraiser and she was selling candy bars. You know, they're a dollar each. There was the caramel. There was the milk chocolate with almond. <laughs> there was the, the one like, you know, the crunch bar, you know, with the little malted things in it. And uh, they had this white wrapper with, with uh, the silver aluminum foil. I can see it like it was yesterday. And, you know, I, I got this idea, like I knew where she kept them. And I thought, well, she, she's not going to mind if I take a couple, right? She's not going to miss a few. She's got like five boxes of candy bars. But, you know, the thing with me and sweets is I can't, I just can't say no. I just can't stop. And so... So I grabbed one, you know, the caramel one, and there was, the caramel was just so wonderful. Um, I ate that one, and um, then I went up and got, got another one, and I ate like seven or eight candy bars. And I ate them, I was just a little kid, right? I, I knew it was wrong. I ate them underneath my bed, <laughs> and I, I, I was dumb enough to leave the evidence there. So, you know, so my sister, you know, she's counting all of her candy bars, and she's, she goes to my mom, and she says, Mom, you know, I, I think um, I'm missing a bunch of candy bars. And I'm, I was like four or five at the time. And so my mom, she says to all the kids, she's like, hey, Chris is missing candy bars. Did, you, did, did anybody take these candy bars? And I lied. You know, I was totally busted, and I lied. So my mom, she, she started searching the house. 
And, you know, it was one of those split-level houses. You got, you know, the floor level. You got the upstairs. You got the basement. We lived in Illinois at the time. And I was down in the basement. I thought I was safe in the basement. I just have to say, like, no one wants to go down to the basement. And um, so my mom started at the top floor, and she just went floor by floor. She got down to the bottom floor, and I was watching her. She went into the room, and my heart is starting to beat. My hands are starting to sweat. She looks underneath the bed, and lo and behold, there's a plethora of wrappers. And I was busted, man. I was busted. So back in, in this time, you know, my parents did not have a difficult time spank, spanking the kids. And so all the kids got lined up, and it was in the family room, and my dad administered a spanking to me. And I'm telling you, it was, it was total silence. And, and even though I was, I'm the youngest of five, so I'm the, I'm the little guy, even though I was absolutely wrong, there were tears in my brother and my sister's eyes, totally, total somber silence as the wrath of dad was administered to, to me. Don't you feel bad for me right now? <laughs> and, and, and you wonder why I have all the issues that I have. But, but look, even in an earthly sense, even in an earthly sense, you know, there's that, there's that sense of somberness when there's an expression of justice or wrath, and, and that is the case in heaven. You're, if there's any place where there's going to be some type of ambient noise, it's going to be heaven. There was none. And you could tell that it really affected the apostle as he has this vision. Not only that, uh, this silence lasted for what seemed to him to be a half an hour. Now, remember with me that heaven is outside the time-space continuum. And so, you know, there, there are going to be no clocks or watches or Apple watches, thank God, uh, no stopwatches in heaven. So John's just expressing how long this felt like. It felt almost like it was an, inter- an eternity. And so he knew that something heavy was about to happen. Verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So there's somber silence. There's angels that are assembled. There is a, a definite article between, before excuse me, the phrase seven angels. So it's the seven angels, uh, not just any seven angels. You'll notice that there are seven angels throughout the book of Revelation, not just in the trumpet judgments, but there are seven angels also in the bowl judgments. We're not absolutely sure if they're the same seven angels, but it does seem to be the case. So these particular angels are dedicated to being used in the expression of God's wrath during the great tribulation. These angels are sounding trumpets, and of course, this is not out of the ordinary either. You see that oftentimes, the angels are sounding trumpets to indicate a, a particular work of God, uh, whether it's going to be the rapture of the church, whether it is uh, the seven trumpet judgments here, um, and then in other cases as well. Verse 3, then another angel, we have a lot of angels here, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Um, There are some people who believe that this angel is in fact Jesus Christ, and the reason they come to this conclusion, remember the word angel, angelos in uh, Greek simply means messenger, but some people believe this to be Jesus because there is um, the golden censer in his hand, and in it is the prayers of the saints. And so they conclude, well, who could be involved 
in offering the prayers of the saints before God the Father. Only Jesus could do that. I don't believe that's necessarily the case. Um, we do know that angels are ministering spirits that are sent to help those who have inherited everlasting life. And so I think it's you know, reasonable to say that this is, is in fact an angel. Um, but this angel does have the golden censer. He's standing before the altar. There is an altar in heaven, and he's making an offering before the Lord. And the offering is made with the prayers of God's people. Um, we've recognized here in the book of Revelation that the prayers of God's people are absolutely significant to not only the heart of God, but also to the fulfillment of God's purposes on heaven and on earth. In fact, the prayers here are used uh, with respect to the timing of these trumpet judgments. You know, it's, it's interesting. Prayer can hold things up. Prayer can hold you up. And I mean that in the sense of prayer can strengthen you. Prayer can help you. You know, those moments where you feel weak and weary and like you can't go on and those moments where God has called you to something that you just know that you're absolutely personally insufficient for, it's in those moments that you need to pray, right? And you feel the power of God's prayer holding you up and strengthening you and supplying to you exactly what it is that you need to not just fulfill the purposes of God in your life, but to do it with a spirit of joy, to do it courageously, to do it in faith. Do you know what I'm talking about today? Is, is this your reflex? You know, we all have reflexes. And when there, when there are events that hit our lives, we know we can discern a lot about the condition of our heart by how we respond immediately. When there's difficulty in our life and, and adversity and we're going through challenges, is it our immediate response? Is it our reflex to turn back to the things of this world to help us get through what we're going through? Um, when you are struggling and, and there's discouragement, is there that immediate reflex to turn back to the things that used to numb you so that you could just endure another day? Or is your reflex, is my reflex prayer? The immediate thing that we do is to go to God and to ask God for help because you know that it is the pleasure of the Father to help you in your time of need. Prayer can hold you up in this sense of strengthening you. Prayer can hold other people up. This is the beauty of intercessory prayer. You know, I think sometimes we find ourselves, you know, interfacing with brothers and sisters in the church and, you know, someone may come along and, and be bold enough to share their personal struggle or trial. You know, it's not always, hey, bro, how you doing? Well, I'm doing great. Well, not everyone's doing great. And sometimes people have uh, enough honesty within them to say, you know, it's been a really bad day. I had, a, I had a really miserable week. Everybody else is happy. It's Christmas, but um, not, not for me. I'm having a hard time. And it's great to put your arm around a person. It's, it's great to give them a word of encouragement. It's even better to pray for them, to take that moment right there. You know, sometimes what we do is we say, hey, bro, hey, sis, you know, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. And then you know what happens? Like if you were to rate, if you were to rate how often you pray for people that you say you're going to pray for, what would you say? 10% of the time? 50% of the time? Do you pray 100% of the time? You know, you, you say to that person, and, and you mean well, and, and there's no doubt that that's the desire of your heart. But just like me, there are things that happen, and pretty soon you find yourself in, in your own world spinning, and 
And, you know, pretty soon you've forgotten about that person or what their need was. And you go throughout the day and, and you said you were going to pray. All I'm saying is it's better just to stop and pray right then. It's better to take the moment and, and not just say, hey, I'll pray for you. And, of course, we're sometimes in situations where we just can't do that. But it is better for us to stop and to say, you know what, let me pray for you right now. Let's go before the throne of heaven, heaven and let's lift this need up right now. Your intercessory prayer can hold up people around you. In addition to that, sometimes prayer itself is holding heaven up, like we see in the book of Revelation. God will use the prayers of his people in the timing of the fullness of his spirit ministering to people in the world. You know, I think, I think this is one reason why we see the justice and judgment of God stayed in our nation. You know, we know that we're in a place God rightfully could judge our nation at any time. What is holding that up? Well, yeah, absolutely, the divine plan of God is holding it up because God is always sovereign. But, you know, it's also the prayers of God's, God's people. It's the intercession of God's people. I think of Abraham and, and the issue in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, you know, it was, of course, God was teaching Abraham how to have a heart of intercession how to live with a heart of mercy and not just desire judgment for those who deserve it. Um, but you know that the prayers of Abraham had impact in the plan and purpose of God. And your prayers have impact as well. Look, I mean, I think it's reasonable for us to, to say, God, stay your hand of judgment and grant to us another great awakening in our nation. I've talked a lot tonight. Are you with me? Do you agree with that tonight? In agreement, can you say amen? amen? Yeah, because God's waiting for us to do that. You know that? We're going to get to this in a minute, but God is waiting for his people to care enough about the lost around them. And I'm concerned. I'm concerned that as Christians, we live in a culture where we are so absolutely self-satisfied, we have lost the burden for the, for the lost. <laughs> I just used the word lost twice in one sentence and wrapped it around one single word. But I'm going to do it again because I don't care. We have lost the burden for the lost. We've lost the burden for the lost. Look, we go throughout our day and as, as long as our bills are paid, as long as food is on the table, as long as we're relatively healthy, as long as things are pretty easy and simple, it's like, hey, look, this is good. I'm going to heaven, right? So I'm all set. Thank you, God. Thank you very much. Thank you for blessing me. And God's like, hey, how about you wake up? How about you wake up to what's really going on, and that, that is that there are lost souls all around you that need the love of my son. You know, and, and so, so the reality of people's eternal suffering should drive us to the throne of God with the burden to pray. You know, God, why, why isn't there a great awakening? God, why isn't there a fresh work and move of your Holy Spirit? Well, maybe it's because God's people aren't praying, Right? Maybe it's because we're so consumed with health, wealth, and prosperity, there's no space in our hearts to be burdened for the lost. I'm ahead of myself. The silence of God here did not mean that God did not hear the prayers of his people. In fact, it, he did hear the prayers of his people. Prayer fundamentally was answered by God. The Bible says, Going on to verse 4, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. I say this all the time. Let me just say it to you again. 
Uh, your prayers rise like an incense, a fragrant aroma to the heart of the Father. You know, in, incense is fragrant. It's beautiful. It does permeate. It just takes a little bit of incense to totally permeate a room, and it lingers. It hangs there. So the incense could have been put out a long time ago, but because it is so fragrant, because it does permeate, it just lingers. It hangs and that, those are your prayers to the heart of God. They're a fragrant aroma. They're pleasing to him. He takes, he breathes your prayers in, in a sense. And it's not just the words you speak, it's the heart that you have. Look, I don't, some, sometimes I was with uh, some good friends the other day, and, you know, this guy was praying for uh, the meal, and sometimes people get nervous to pray around me, I, I, and I can never understand why that's the case. But, you know, he, he prayed, and then he finished prayer, and he's like, man, I, I hope that was okay. And I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? Of course it was okay. It was, to, it was to the Father. It was to the Father through the Son. And God's not concerned about the eloquence of your prayer. God's not concerned about you praying in the old King James language or maybe in, in the original language that the New Testament was written in. God bless you if you can pray in Greek, but God doesn't really care about that. God doesn't care if you throw in a Hebrew word from time to time. Like somehow he's impressed that you know a couple of Hebrew words because you have an interlinear Bible. No, God is concerned about your heart. It's the simplicity of your heart that matters to God. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, you know, you need to come to me like little children. You need to have that simplicity and that naivety. He's not, of course, saying we should be sophisticated in our understanding of the word of God. He's not saying that. But there should be the, sim the simplicity and naivety of faith in our, in our life that we actually, actually believe what the Word of God says, that when the people of God pray, God hears. Amen. So, all that now to jump into some judgments. Then the angel, verse 5, took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunders, lightnings, and an earthquake. So there's just this, there, you know, it's kind of like the drum roll. You know, when there's a drum roll that precedes some big thing, that, that's a, it's a heavy drum roll, right? But there's a shaking for everyone who's living on earth at the time. Verse 6, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, we're talking about seven uh, other judgments. We're going to talk about how incrementally, just in a minute, we're going to talk about how these judgments get incrementally worse. These particular judgments are broken up in, into two sections. There, there's the first four. Uh, and you're going to recognize that, for the most part, we're talking about um, judgment on nature. And, and all of those judgments end up affecting how people live, their livelihood, commerce, and things like that. And then the final three judgments are going to be directed specifically at human beings. Um, they're so significant that the final three are preceded by a triple woe from one of the angels. So from heaven, from the atmosphere, there comes down hail uh, and fire mixed with blood. Um, is, it, is it actually blood? Is it colored blood? Is it blood red? We're not necessarily sure. 
Um, but all of these judgments are not in quarters, they're all in thirds. And so a third of all of the trees globally, a third of all of the green grass is destroyed. Um, of course, this could be, we'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute, but this could be a nuclear holocaust. I think that, you know, we, could, uh, we can imagine in our minds, remember I said this isn't always necessary, it's for sure not good for us to sensationalize the book of Revelation, um, but we could see how a nuclear holocaust could have such a huge impact on the world globally and on nature. Uh, you know, and I, I, I hesitate to say this, I am absolutely all for um, taking care of and stewarding the creation that God has given to us. A lot of you know my undergraduate work was environmental law, so I've always had a deep appreciation for for the creation that God has made. Um, I also understand from a biblical perspective that this earth is not, first of all, it's not God. It's not worthy to be worshipped. In environmental law, man, I had a lot of fellow students who they worshipped the earth. I mean, whenever there was a new development project in Southern California, they would go and they would chain themselves to a tree because, you know, they viewed, they viewed the trees and the grass and the bushes and the hills as God. And we know that that's not the case. That's pantheism. Um, but we also know that, that the whole universe, including our earth, is going to melt away with a fervent heat, that God is going to, not with water, destroy the earth, but with fire, he's going to destroy the earth, and he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. So a third of the trees, a third of all the green grass is destroyed. Verse 8, then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Uh, now, listen, I mean, you can imagine maybe a comet, um, a, a big comet hitting, touching down on planet Earth, and the absolute devastation that would cause, especially if it hit, you know, in an ocean or something like that. We're not necessarily sure if that's the case either. But we know that globally, this is not a localized event, so globally what's going to happen is a third of the sea is going to become like blood. This, of course, reminds you of uh, the judgment on Egypt. Remember, this was one of the first things that God did through Moses. As God had sent Moses as the Redeemer, he had heard the cries of the children of Israel. Remember, they had, they had pleaded with God. They were in such bondage and difficulty, uh, living in slavery under the the harsh totalitarian rulership of Pharaoh, that they cried out to the Lord. God heard their cry, and uh, ultimately God raised up Moses. God sent Moses to Egypt, and, you know, in Egypt, the Nile was worshipped. They were for sure not just polytheistic, but they were pantheistic as well. And so God demonstrated each of those successive judgments. There were ten in all. Each of them were a demonstration over gods or goddesses that the people of Egypt worshipped, demonstrating that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, is the God. He is the great God. He is absolutely supreme over all other gods. And one of the first things that God did through Moses is, of course, he caused the Nile to become red with blood. Um, indicating not only his coming judgment on the nation of Egypt, but his superiority. And so, you know, it's, it's possible in a similar sense that that's going to happen here as well. We do know that a third of the creatures in the, in the sea die. And, um, you know, if you've ever seen 
maybe a stream or a river or some local part of an ocean get hit with bacteria or something and it kills all the fish. All the fish die. They float to the surface. They end up on the beach. They're rotting corpses, you know, obviously smell. They're miserable to behold. And you can just imagine a third of all the living sea creatures dying, floating to the top of the surface or washing up on the shore. So, I mean, it's going to be... I mean, it's going to be something to behold. And then not only that, but a third of the ships in the seas are destroyed as well. You think that we have supply chain issues now. There's going to be severe supply chain issues during the Great Tribulation. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Now, when it does come to seeing these events through the lens of you know, modern advancements, this typically is where people would say, well, this is most likely a nuclear holocaust, right? You have, you have this, um, what appears to be a star, it's called wormwood, wormwood was uh, a brush in the desert landscape in the Middle East. Uh, if you ate it, it was very sour to the taste. It was really literally good for nothing. Um, but it would, if it was around fresh water, it would impact the fresh water so much that you weren't able to drink it. And so what John sees is this, what seems to be this star falling from heaven. It has such an impact on nature itself that a third of the waters are not only bitter, but they're also poisonous. And you can understand, hey, maybe, maybe this is where this nuclear holocaust is actually fitting into the picture. We're not necessarily sure. What we do know is that it's a severe damage on the life of people. Verse 12, then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. So now we're looking at judgment that's not just global, but we're talking about uh, fixed celestial uh, planets or uh, sources that emanate light are affected as well. The normal rhythm of light for uh, the earth is impacted, and so the, the sense of judgment has extended beyond the earth and, in fact, into the atmosphere. Verse 13, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not a Beatles song, by the way. Whoa, whoa, whoa to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So, look, I mean... You know, I read these first four judgments, and I think, how could anything get worse than that? And well, I think two things. I think, thank God that the rapture is going to be before the Great Tribulation period. <laughs> okay, I don't know if that's the way you see it, but, but I for sure do not want to be here during this time. And I think, man, how much more severe could this possibly be after reading these four particular judgments? But the next three are so severe that... The angels have a message for those who are living on earth at the time. Hey, you thought that this was bad. We're pronouncing three more woes over you, each one of them representing three more trumpet blasts that are coming. Now, look, my, my personal view on this 
is that they're not just they're not just making a declaration, a half-hearted or heartless declaration. I think there's a grieving over the condition of the human heart. You know, even from the perspective of an angel, right? I mean, it's because these judgments are incremental in how devastating or catastrophic they are. I don't think that they happen all at once. I think that they're chronological. They're, they're not of all the same severity, so they incrementally get worse and worse. And, you, you know, you're compelled to ask the question as you're reading this book, God, why, why is this stretched out? Why, did, why didn't this just happen all at once? You know, sometimes when you get bad news or you're going to get in trouble, it's like, hey, just do it all. Just give it to me all at once. Tear the Band-Aid off because I don't want to suffer the difficulty over the course of time. But for some reason, and I, I have a suggestion tonight, for some reason, God allows these judgments to not only stretch out over the course of time, and that may be seven years, for some of you it may be three and a half years, nevertheless, it's still over the course of time, and then in addition to that, they get incrementally worse, right? I mean, with the four horsemen, there was a quarter of the earth was destroyed, or a quarter of the population and now we've increased to a third. And now we're not talking just about global, earthly uh, catastrophe. We're talking about the sun and the moon and those celestial objects that, that emit light that are absolutely essential for life on earth and for the normal rhythm of life on earth. Why is it that it's stretched out over the course of time? Why is it that these things get incrementally more difficult. And I think the answer is this, it's the heart of God to draw the lost to himself. I think it's, I, th I do believe that it's God giving people an opportunity to repent. You know, God will incrementally turn the heat up. Listen to me. God will incrementally turn the heat up to get our attention. You know, it's not that he just rips the band-aid off. It's not that he just drops the judgment all at once. The chastening hand of God doesn't, doesn't just come immediately after the initial sin. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, it is the kindness of God that draws us to re repentance. It's his long suffering with us, the space that he gives to us between the sin we commit and the, and the chastening that he gives in response. That space sometimes is taken. For us, it's like, wow, you know what? I guess I can do this and get away with it. And, and we've completely mistaken. We've mistaken the long-suffering quality of God's character in that. No, it's, it's not so that we can get away with more. It's so that we can respond to his grace and his love and his mercy. And I think that as hard as this may be to understand, the stretching out of these judgments and their incre incremental difficulty is God speaking to people, hey, listen, get your heart right before it gets worse. Get your heart right before it gets worse. You know, sometimes we'd have the opportunity to share the gospel with people, and, and maybe it's clear, like, they are headed down the wrong road. You know, their life is just full of stuff, full of sin, and, um, you know, there, there may be some consequences to sin that they're experiencing, and so maybe they're compelled to either come to church or They'll call the church, or sometimes I'll get an email, or maybe I'll meet this person, you know, shopping or whatever, and I'll say to them, hey, listen, you don't have to hit rock bottom. God loves you, and God will take you there, but you don't have to go there. Right now, God is speaking to you, 
And God has allowed these different things in your life to wake you up so that there's an awareness of your need for him so that you turn to Christ now. Maybe some of you are in that spot tonight. You know, you're, you're present here, you've come to church, and you're not a Christian, but there have been things happening in your life. You know that there's been a lifestyle, there have been behaviors that are, that are wrong. You know it in your heart. You can't even explain how you know that those things are wrong, but you know that they're wrong. I'll tell you right now, it's because God has placed a conscience within you. You were born with this conscience. It's a, it's a moral law that God has given to all of us. And, and, and even before we put our trust and faith in Christ, when we do things that are displeasing to God, there's this sense of guilt and shame, and, and we know. And it's not just because mom said, don't steal the candy bars from your sister, right? It's not just because of that. It's because God loved us enough to place a moral law within our hearts so that we would know we would know that there is a, a right. We would know that there is a wrong, that we would be convicted when we've stepped into those things that are displeasing to God because God fundamentally doesn't want to live without you. God wants to live with you. God wants you to know when you're off the course. And so he'll play, he places that moral conscience within our hearts. But you know, you don't have to go down the road of denying that internal voice of conscience that God gives to the extent where you've hit rock bottom. You've absolutely lost everything. Your life is a total wreck. You know, when you get to that point, you're going to be able to look back and say, well, God spoke to me there and God spoke to me there. And why didn't I get my life right when, when God had sent that person, right? All of a sudden, we see the divine appointments that God had been placing in our life all along because he's always been there, he's always cared, he's always loved. And I think, sincerely, I think that the great tribulation is going to be like that. I think that God is incrementally allowing the heat to get turned up so that these people can be awakened to their lostness and put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And the, the crazy thing here is that even in the great tribulation, people are going to be acting like everything is okay. Right? They're going to know that judgment's coming from God, but they're going to be acting like they don't have to get things right with God. How, abs how absolutely absurd is that? I think that when the angels pronounce these woes, it's not, just, uh, it's not just in the sense of saying, hey, prepare yourself for this because it's coming. I think it's, it's really, hey, get your heart right. Get your heart right. You know, I want to encourage us tonight as we wrap up this chapter, you know, I think that the chapter is sobering. I think it's sometimes easy for us when we read the book of Revelation to, you know, especially if we have a pre-tribulational view of the rapture of the church, we disconnect ourselves from the, the tragedy and the catastrophe. We disconnect ourselves from what's going to happen in the great tribulation to the life that we're living now. Um, I think sometimes it's easy for us to sensationalize these things and make a movie out of them or maybe some books and entertain ourselves and, and really, really lose the sense of impact in what is going to happen. Um, I think it's easy for us, you know, to leave the work of the ministry up to the leaders in the church and the people that are paid and the elders and the pastors and the worship leaders and the missionaries and to forget that right from the get-go in the book of Revelation that John says that we are a kingdom of priests to our God. We are a kingdom of priests. Look, we, I think we, we, we all want to see God move, but 
you know God wants to move through you. It's not that God just wants to move through the institutional church. It's not just that, that we're, we're praying that God raises up more church planters to go out and to plant churches so that they can do the work of the ministry. No, the real awakening, the real spiritual awakening is going to come to our nation when Christians understand that they all have a calling from the Lord. That we're all a kingdom of priests. That there are spiritual gifts given to all of us. That the Great Commission isn't just set aside for a few in the church who are pastors or leaders who have some formal calling from God. But when all of the people of God say, you know what, Lord, just like Isaiah said, here am I, send me. I don't want to live another day without a burden for the lost. You know, God, I've never led someone to, to Jesus. And I'm so thankful at our church that there's an opportunity for people to respond to the gospel when the message is preached. But God, I want to experience that in my life. Have you prayed that before? You know, maybe you've never had the opportunity to lead someone into the everlasting arms of Christ. And, you know, you, you may put it in the framework of like, well, who am I? How could I do that? You know, I, I'm not seminary trained, you know. I've never had an internship at the church. That has nothing to do with it. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You have the Word of God. Listen, you have your own testimony that's, that is how you overcome, by your testimony and by the word of the Lamb, right? God has given you everything that you need to go out into this world and to impact this world for his kingdom this week. And I want to I encourage us. You know, there were 120 disciples in the upper room. That, that's all that there were. And the Spirit of God fell on those 120 disciples and, and as the fire of God fell on their lives, they couldn't be held back. They couldn't be held back. They wouldn't be silenced. They wouldn't, they wouldn't live their lives in fear. They couldn't anymore because they'd been baptized in power. They lived their lives with a burden for the, for the lost. They couldn't just endure a life being satisfied with having, you know, quote-unquote blessings just enough to get through to get them to heaven that wasn't enough for them. When Jesus taught them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they fully understood that they were to be a part of that coming to pass. And I, I, just, I just want to commission you guys tonight. I want to commission you, right? I mean, we're not a church of consumers. We don't just come and sit and take in a message like we're eating Christmas cookies, there were Christmas cookies up here this morning. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can I have a heart-to-heart -heart with you tonight? Can I? Well, I already am. Can I have a heart-to-heart -heart with you tonight? Look, it's time to get busy. It's time to get busy. It's like, well, Pastor, you know, man, we're in the end times. and Look at all the nonsense that's happening. Yeah, well, well, well are you sharing the gospel? Are you sharing the gospel? Or are you so stuck on your news feed that all you talk about are temporary things that are going to burn how about, we, how about we ask God for a burden for the lost? How about we say, okay, hey, God, you know what? I've been totally delinquent. I've got unsaved people in my workplace. I've just been complaining and moaning about them to you. And, and just asking, hey, God, can you, change, can you change the work environment so I don't have to deal with these miserable people? How about bringing some Christians in? How about you sharing the love of Jesus with them? How about recognizing that there's a divine appointment that God didn't place you in that spot just so you could get a paycheck, 
but that you could be the light of the world and the salt of the earth to those who don't know Christ. To recognize and realize that person is bitter and angry and nasty because they have a hole in their heart that they're trying to satisfy with the things of this world instead of God. Of course they're going to be like that. They're pining for what you have, but they don't even know it. And, and until we humble ourselves and start really living as Christians, living as a light of the world and, and allowing the joy of the Lord to be our strength, those lost people are never going to look at us and say, hey, you know what? I want what you have. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, and I can't explain it, but you know you're different. You're different than everybody else in this office. You got to tell me, what is the secret what website are you going to? What person are you listening to? And in that moment, this is what you get to do. You get to say, Jesus. Jesus, he's, he's, he has changed my life. He's changed my life. Look, I, I don't, I don't want to be a consumer Christian. I don't want to pastor a consumer church. You know, I want to see God. I want to see God move in these last days. I want to be in a place in my life where I am unwilling to accept anything less than that. Anything less than that. God, we're praying for an awakening. We're praying for an awakening to start in the church first. We're praying that it reaches out into our community and into the world. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to be serious about this, God, until we see it materialize before our very eyes because we know fundamentally this is what you want. And we would not want this unless you place your want upon our own hearts. And so let's, let's, let's be sobered up. Let's let this chapter wake us up to the reality. People are lost and going to hell, and it's time for us to be serious about being lights in this dark world and sharing the message of Christ. And if we don't have that message living in our own lives, maybe tonight's a night that we need to, to recognize that and say, hey, you know what, God, something's missing in my own life. Something's missing in my own life. I want to be that light. I want, to, I want the joy of the Lord to be my strength. I, I want to be courageous like that. I want to be that bold witness. I want to stand out, not for me to stand out. I want your power to be so manifest in my life. I want you to stand out through me. But God, that's not where I'm at right now. And I just want to be honest with you about that. You know, you don't have to be ashamed to pray that prayer. You don't have to be afraid to pray that prayer. Because the very fact that you realize that is evidence that the Spirit of God is speaking to you right now. And it's the heart of the Father to do the work in your life. If only, right, we're held up in prayer. If only we ourselves would bring our hearts sincerely before the Father in humility and ask Him to do the work and be willing to be obedient to the work that he desires to do. And then you know what's going to happen? Our lives are going to change. Our families are going to change. Our community is going to change. The church is going to change. The city is going to change. The world is going to change because we don't, we don't need the wisdom of man. We don't need the sophistication of man. We don't need the genius of man. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the same thing the early church had. So let's pray. Let's just bow our heads and, and let's open ourselves up to the Lord tonight.
Father, we thank you for the sobering word that your Holy Spirit gives to us. We thank you, God, that we don't just routinely come and sit and consume, but that we sit in your presence, that you always have a word, a word, a perfect word, a personal word. We give you our hearts tonight, and Father, we pray that the conviction of your spirit would just be so strong. God, we pray that the, the voice of your spirit would, would be so loud that it would drown out all of the other voices that have encroached into our hearts and minds. God, in the confusion that ensues and the misplaced affections, the earthly distractions. We pray, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on our hearts right now. Lead us in confession and repentance so that the new wine would be poured out into our lives. Oh God, the last thing that we want to do is play games, God. We don't want to play church. And our hearts long for that work of your spirit that we can see across the history of your people, the, his the, the history of the church, Times where the gates of heaven were opened and by grace you poured out your spirit in fullness. We ask for that tonight. We pray that you would baptize us in the power of your spirit. We pray that there would be a holy fire that would burn within our hearts. We pray, God, that it would be relentless, it would be consuming. God, that the fire would spread, that the lost in our city and our families would be saved. God, give us a burden this week for the lost souls that you divinely bring into our lives and make the light of your spirit so bright within us. Tonight we're going to close in a time of worship and I just want to encourage us to let the spirit of God as he has been moving in our hearts to allow him to continue to move. You know, maybe this evening there's um, just a wage of joy that you have because you've seen God's spirit moving and so many mighty ways. I want to encourage you tonight to just offer up your praise to God. And maybe tonight there's um, conviction, conviction over certain things. 
And I just want to strongly encourage you tonight to, to not shut that voice of the Spirit down, to not harden your heart against it, um, to not put off repentance for another time, but, but to really respond to what God is speaking to you tonight. And you know, that's between you and God. God knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly where you're at. Tonight, I want to encourage you to receive the words that the Spirit of God is speaking to you and to respond. And maybe, maybe it is repentance tonight. Maybe there are steps of faith that you need to take. Maybe there's a, a lifestyle of obedience that you need to choose. Maybe you've had a, a battle in your mind and God is calling you to to come back to that place where your mind is an altar and you're meditating on those things that are good and true and praiseworthy. Tonight, during this time of worship, as the Spirit of God is moving in your life, we just want to encourage you to receive everything that God has for you and let tonight be a, just a benchmark, a new beginning for you. You know, that you would go into this week really expecting God to do great things. You can stand tonight in worship. You can kneel. You can come before uh, the altar in the sense here at the stage if you feel led. Um, our leaders are here to pray for you tonight. Let's just enter into a time of worship.